David Palumbo Liu is the Louise Hewlett Nixon Professor and Professor of Comparative Literature at Stanford University, a lauded author and founding editor of the e-journal Occasion, Interdisciplinary Studies in the Humanities. His work discusses topics of human rights, race, ethnicity, and environmental justice, and has appeared in such venues as The Washington Post, The Nation, The Guardian, Jacobin, and Al Jazeera, amongst others. His most recent book, Speaking Out of Place, Regaining Our Political Voice, asks the reader to reconceptualize both what we think politics is and our relationship to it. David Palumbo Liu, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Thank you very much for having me. I think we'll begin with a short reading from your work just for people to have a, a flavor of it. Right. I thought uh, when you asked me to do that, the best place is to start at the beginning. So I'm going to read just a short passage from the introduction to the book. And I begin with a quote from other people, actually, from James and Grace Lee Boggs from a book called Revolution and Evolution in the 20th Century. One of the first steps toward creating an enlarged concept of our humanity is to develop an enlarged concept of our relation as human beings to politics. And so the book really talks about how we might reimagine this relationship both to politics, but also to each other. And I continue, one way we have lost a sense of being together and of being potent political actors is through the delegation of two others of our responsibilities. We have given them our voice. And the people to whom we have given our voice are some of the most irresponsible on earth. By the same token, we've become used to thinking we have no right to have an opinion that does not register on the very limited menu of possibilities that has been set before us. We have also lost a sense that we have a right to determine the nature of our relationship to place on multiple scales, from our homes and neighborhoods to our towns and cities, to our countries, to the international sphere, and to the planet. Somehow we have accepted that we depend not on each other, but on the very few people who rule us. We need to shift the focus back to the people and care wisely for our precarious world, because our leaders have proven themselves both uninterested in the most pressing needs of the planet and incapable of imagining what we need to do. So the book chronicles how people have stood up and regained their voices, and also some of the topics where their voices are most urgently needed. Yes, and I love how you put it into focus, at, and you really remind us how we could be more connected to the land. So many of us, in like we're living in the center of the city, so many of us, you just don't even have, we've lost that connection. And it's interesting because I was interviewing a Nigerian photographer the other day, and so she always, she goes out and you know, she's photographing farmers or people in rural communities, give, send back images that are about the global south or, or what is poverty. But if you ask these farmers, they don't think of themselves as poor. They own their land. They're not in debt. They're very connected to their communities. And what we consider wealth is very foreign to them. But they would ask, you know, you work yourself to death, but you're never with your family. When was the last time you saw the river from mm -hmm. the earth in mm -hmm. your hands? So you really ask ourselves, what do we value the most? What kind of lives we want to live? And, okay. and also what mm -hmm. will we be living for the next generation? There's a great book by, that just came out, I think, last year, and I'm forgetting the title, but the author's name is Candice Fujikani, and she's a scholar in Hawaii, 
And she talks exactly of this idea of abundance and how we've lost sight of how abundant our world is. And we substitute other kinds of commodities and objects for our sense of what abundance might be. So it's exactly what you're talking about, Mia. And really, I like the, it's kind of a radical vision. I think it's somewhere, yeah, we feel like we can buy everything or as you say, put the responsibility onto politicians who really aren't working on our behalf. Often they're working for corporations or, mm -hmm. you know, the various lobbying interests. So this idea of the public square that used to be a physical space is now sort of a digital space, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting and connects us, but also it's also owned, owned by corporations. Right. I mean, the book is trying to also understand the notion of space differently and proportion and scale. So we often are awed by massive scale and think that anything that we say has to have the amplitude to fill that huge space. And this lends itself to making bombastic, big, and usually irresponsible and indefensible statements that are very... Um, provocative, but ill thought out. And so the book really begins with the micro and imagining how we can simply in our interpersonal relationships fill space differently. And the book has a number of examples that I think really illustrate this very well. That's not to say we should back off social media. I think it's a very important tool, but we should be wise in how we use it and what we expect from it. Exactly, because there there's certain interests behind it, and certainly one of those interests is making money, which is you know we all need to survive in some way. Mm -hmm. But I kind of feel like when you're saying, "What do we value the most? What is a measure of someone's wealth or a happy? Mm -hmm. What does happiness mean?" That equating with money is kind of it's almost missing the point. But you know, you know, because you you know, work in Stanford, you're right in the center of Silicon Valley. Mm. And you know, when these tech uh, millionaires or billionaires achieve so much, they want to give it away and they want to live on an island or in the wilderness. <laughs> well, uh, to begin with, you're talking about a lot of my students who uh, live in dorms and they form little teams and think of the startup they're going to um, become rich on. And the problem with this is that again, it's a matter of scale, it becomes disproportionate with life itself. So uh, it also becomes a kind of addiction, frankly, where one never gets enough. As one moves up on the scale that is beyond the 1%, the point, 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 one percent then if you think of your social world, it is so hermetically sealed with people just like yourself, always trying to get a step further. So I do not believe these people are happy. <laughs> I, I feel that they think they're happy and they want to believe it's the case, but they can only think so by remaining locked into that mind frame, which is to my mind, incredibly alienating and destructive to the rest of uh, the planet. And, and part of that, yeah, one of the things that this book reminds us is also maybe how we could return to a different value, a different uh, relationship to time, and mm -hmm. that things won't happen immediately, this kind of, you know, I want it now, and I want, as you said about scale, I want it to be so big. A lot of the changes that we need to make to our behaviors, if we're going to make this planet still viable, you know, gradual, it's not immediate. It's interesting because we've been having some discussions with cognitive neuroscientists and our technology is going so much faster, but our brains, we still have our, in many ways, our primitive brains. We are not machines. And so I think part of that 
separation is that we, we can't become our machines and trying to stay a pace with them makes us unhappy. Well, that's a really interesting topic to bring up because if you think about neural pathways and you make the, you know, the um, comparison to like paths that native peoples or, or anybody would make over time, you know, think that a certain path would be physically made by just the movement of people and their, their feet upon the earth until it becomes a, a clearly discerned path, that in order to change that path, you need to let the grass grow back up. Similarly, I think in our brains, we have to start, you know, not using those pathways in order to let them become uh, less potent in determining the way that we think. But again, it gets back to the sense of time. Who thinks we have the time to luxuriate in not doing something? On the other hand, especially here in Silicon Valley, there's the notion of it's better to do something than nothing. It's also not a given at all. And often what is done, if it has a a negative impact, then we call it disruption. You know, we, you just put a different kind of language upon it to hide what it's actually doing. How do you view social media in regards to speaking out of place? I mean, I would see it as a liberating force that amplifies this revised political space you, you speak about, but how would you address the perhaps inevitable drawbacks? Well, there's so many different ways to answer the question, so I'll answer it in the simplest way possible. I teach courses on human rights, and we talk a lot about the beautiful ideals of the Declaration of Human Rights. And nobody in the class disagrees. It's a wonderful document. But then I say, do you all know what the biggest problem of human rights is? And the class offers many different answers. And I said, no, really, the problem with human rights is humans, that you can have the most beautiful system in the world, but it's the human both our positive and negative aspirations and capacities and needs that drive these things. So I can imagine an idyllic social media world where everybody can say anything they want and it becomes a way to amplify good causes. I can also see it being taken over by really bad people who can say anything they want, which is why I'm so, I place so much importance on education is that if we lose our ability to be introspective and skeptical and to measure value versus harm, then we become susceptible to manipulation. And social media is great at that. So I have no quarrel with social media. I'm on all the, all the platforms, but it can be very dangerous when people have the power to shape opinion and the other side had no power to resist the shaping of, that, of those opinions. There's no space for skepticism, which my book tries to argue for in the terms of speaking with each other, presenting alternate points of view, et cetera, keeping the, a debate alive that is real rather than simply name calling or polemics. But that's increasingly hard when you have politicians who feed off fear. And this has always been the case. It's just gotten incrementally worse when you have things like issues with the police, issues with political systems that are quite vicious. They feed on people needing them. And the way that they assure people that they're needed is by saying, only we can protect you. We see it all over the world. And you had spoken a little bit about the necessity of intercommunication between all of these, these points to, in essence, make progress. I think that this is something that's pretty fascinating in regards mm -hmm. to truth social 
that has been created by by Donald Trump in crafting his own kind of social, social media platform in which the truth is what is spoken about. But how do you see this playing out in the future where there is the question of what is being talked about in a separate bubble outside from the conversation itself? As you mentioned it, then we can only hope that Donald Trump will continue his amazing consistent losing and you know ability to tank companies almost with a Midas reverse touch. Well, the book went to press or went into publication, the beginning of the publication, which takes several months. And during that interlude, January 6th, 2021 happened, the insurrection. And so I immediately thought of the question that you just asked, right? What happens when you think about taking a play, uh, reclaiming space, protests, and all these, the obvious critique that people might place saying, well, what about the insurrection? Isn't that exactly an enactment of what you've been arguing for? And one of the ways to look at it, that's not even political in the sense of conservatives and, and liberals, is to think of the idea of exclusion versus inclusion. A lot of what I was just talking about in terms of fear is about excluding others, is always imagining a way that they, it's ne necessary to exclude, contain, harm, deny the humanity of other people. So the, this is militating against inclusion. The other way of speaking is to reclaim the idea of a public that includes everybody, right? And it's not predicated on fear-mongering and protectionism, so to speak, but rather uh, listening. And to get back to a word that you used early in your comment, one, one way of doing a more wholesale reassessment of things is to put into brackets uh, the idea of progress, because progress, we've been, again, it's like the neural pathways. We think of it linearly. And life is, as, as Mia and I know, because we're much older than you, or at least I am, is not linear. It's multifat, and we can talk about literature as being a perfect enactment of this, right? Literature is not progressive. It doesn't take you to one place or the other. It rather introduces you to worlds that invites you in, and allows you to explore. In fact, it compels you to explore many different points of view. In so doing, you become aware of your own moral and ethical anchors and the not only what they are, what your beliefs are, but the potential costs of following them in certain situations or the potential advantages of thinking differently in others. So it's uh, as opposed to a pathway which is set and has a kind of purpose and a rational function, literature has the power to allow people not to progress, but to rather be more introspective and to think of different ways of growing, which is not the same thing as, as progress. I think that's a, a beautiful, I mean, I. They do say that people are reading fewer books, but in our world, maybe not so. And I think that that really helps us appreciate what literature does. And we need these nuanced visions, I think now more than ever, to, to examine our politics, but also our, our private lives. And getting back to what I feel like is an, an, another thread in, in your book is that we really have to examine the systems that we live in and whether those systems are the ones we want to live in. Is that, mm -hmm. you know, do they really serve us? And I know that you're a longtime, you know, activist, public intellectual, you're also a journalist, so that I don't know if you characterize yourself as a journalist, but you're certainly widely published. You know, what are your reflections on this 
you know, what capitalism has become, how might we reimagine it or, or other systems? Well, I think that the best proof is before our eyes, that we don't have to go to extenuated abstract arguments, reaching far afield for evidence. All we have to do is look at the planet. And these days I say to my students, as we, if we are lucky enough to be off Zoom and face-to-face, why are we all wearing masks? If we go back to the idea of progress, we're supposed to be the most advanced you know, generation in the world. The pandemic didn't need to be this destructive at all. It, it's virulent, it's dangerous, but we certainly had the capacity to limit its harm. And we see these huge demonstrations all over the place now to let us not wear masks. We don't want to be vaccinated. There's something that's really torn at the social fabric that we see unraveling before our very eyes or climate change, for example. These fires, these floods, these hot spells, you can only uh, go back to Falmer's Almanac so much to say, well, it once happened 100 years ago, so maybe it's happening with such frequency. It's here in Northern California especially, we build it into our rhythm of life now. It used to be, well, perhaps an earthquake. Now we can count on the sky being filled with ash every summer. And the first time I became familiar with an N95 mask was not about COVID, of course. It was because we were told to wear them because of the wildfires. They're, again, a product of the drought, et cetera, et cetera. So these are systemic failures. They're They're not flaws. They're not aberrations. They are built into the system. The system has been designed to ignore these things or to think of these things as either inconsequential or or things that cost too much to fix. And so when we talk about things like abolition, I teach a course on abolition and climate change simply to get people to think, as you mentioned, about large systems rather than individual failings. And once you put that together, you see that the people who benefit from this, again, are comprised an increasingly small proportion of humanity. And it's been politicized in such a way that if you critique that, you're also against supposedly all these other things. And I think the book is about helping us understand the need for a new language, a new descriptive language that doesn't bypass a political critique, but allows us to see how politics, again, getting back to the first passage I read, we have to have a different relationship to politics. It can't be conservatives versus liberals, it can't be radicals versus extremists. We have to scale it back to an understanding of how human beings can and might interact in much more kind and generous and less harmful ways that create social benefits for everybody. Yes, I think, I mean, it's not uh, exclusive to America, but so much of politics and and how it's also played out in media, it, is it designed to trigger us into an emotional response? Mm-hmm. I would love to know. I would love to have more policy. We do these podcasts in order to get into policy mm-hmm. and details mm-hmm. that isn't always available in this kind of soundbite yeah. culture. That's it. You're exactly right. If we had policies that were not labeled as coming from the right and left, but simply were for clean water, schools that were well serviced both by caring teachers and conscientious teachers and also material support, retirement that would be, would would give people an end of life that would be humane and enjoyable after toiling away. And even the idea of work could be reimagined. These are all policies. They're not, it's not politics. Politics is about policy and it's become now about ideology. 
Exactly. And so, many, so often, I mean, it was interesting because I had a conversation there with Richard Wolf of Democracy at Work, and he was saying, well, there's polls out there that where you even ask, where they've polled Republicans, you know, are supposed to like the capitalist system or whatever. But when you ask them about it, it's yep. not even serving them very well, and they want something else. So they're even kind of open. And so many things don't have to be, you know, polarizing. You spoke about human rights. And there's another side to that, too. There's uh, human rights, but then there's also earth law. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who would be in support of earth law, they might be some kind of, you know, blue collar workers in America, but that might not want their rivers poisoned because it's, po- you know, poisoning their families. And so they can get behind, you know, earth law because they can speak on behalf of the river or the whatever is, uh, is being poisoned and it could help protect their health in turn. Right. And part of that has to have, as you mentioned before, an economic component, because, of course, the people who are polluting the river want to say it's an economic necessity. Do you want clean water? Do you want your jobs? And that's such a false choice. That's and again, it gets back to what we've been talking about all day today, which is build in people a sense of their own capacity to think and not simply be dictated to and and accept just out of hand false choices like that. So I'm wondering how you feel your training in the classics and in literature, uh, your professor of comparative literature at Stanford, prepared you for considering these questions? Uh, there's so many different parts to that answer. When I studied classical Chinese, which we're talking about 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th century, the thing it taught me was humility. <laughs> because to understand classical languages, you have to spend a lot of time looking at other people's works, looking at dictionaries, being a kind of detective, and nothing happens quickly. And my experience would be it would take me maybe sometimes two or three weeks even to understand a couplet, just two lines of poetry, because they don't stand along, they fit into a body of a poem, which fits into the corpus of the poet, et cetera, et cetera. So decentering your sense of mastery and forcing you to take a kind of vacation from normal notions of intellectual progress to explore different worlds, essentially. That's what literature has taught me. Reading has taught me how hard it is to write well, to, to really do something other than the mundane or the expected. So all those things to me point to a kind of a human creativity and a human capacity to both create, but also to learn, to re- learn about life in different ways and pass on those lessons to other people. One thing I think great teachers do is to embody what they talk about, the values that they profess, the things that they feel are important in their everyday lives outside of literature. So when I become involved in politics or a cause, it's a reflection of what I've learned through any number of things, including literature. Literature doesn't stand alone. Literature is part of the world. That's the other thing that I think is very important. As much as we should enjoy those moments when we're alone reading a book and we're isolated and just in a meditative state, We should understand that literature is always about something else besides itself. And it brings us into different kinds of relationships with other things. Yeah. I completely agree with what you're, what you're talking on, on literature. I mean, literature is so essential in, in essence, escaping the perspective that we have, or at least adding to the perspective we have and allowing a, a communication around the world to see things from a completely different angle. And I think kind of bringing it back to your book, 
you speak the, the power that literature can have in that like an artistic expression. And what I found most powerful with, with your book was the incorporation you had of, of references of other authors. Some of their excerpts were beautiful in that they were centered on very concrete topics, you know, very black and white, dealing with environmental climate change and things like this. But they incorporated a, a passion to it with some of it. I mean, the ending poem, it just made me think, how does the importance of literature, how does this amplify speaking out of place? What, what can we say is the importance, the incorporation, the cooperation between these two things in our modern context for the individual? In answering your question, I, I will say something I wanted to say before, which is that getting back to that one scene of individual, meditative, isolated reading, and it gets back to the idea of humility too. You realize when you read authors from the past, that the things that puzzle you have puzzled people forever, right? That we're not alone in this and nobody has necessarily figured it out at all. And so you feel much less like, you know, what's wrong with me rather than what's puzzling and confusing about life itself. I begin the book, as you know, with this episode that Jacques Lancière talks about the Aventine Hill in Rome. And for the viewers who haven't read the book, which I hope they do, the Aventine Hills is one of the southernmost hills in Rome. And during this period around the sixth century, it really was the gate that the surrounding environs where you had refugees, foreigners, uh, slaves. In other words, the real dregs of society, the people kept at the margins, obviously non, not citizens. And there had been a number of slave revolts in Rome and protests. And at this point on the Aventine Hill, they decided to do something different rather than armed insurrection or violent protest. Remember, they had, this class of people had been told they have no voices. It was described that when they spoke, it was like the braying of donkeys. You know, it didn't register as, as language, language, it registered as noise. So what they did is they set up a performance. They set up another forum and acted out the role of citizens. They showed their capacity to reimagine, to remap that space, to create a parallel universe, as it were. But if we take that more as an, uh, a metaphor for what I'm arguing for in the book, is that you discover your own capacities that others have denied exist, right? Not in just an emotional or intuitive way, but in an organized political fashion. You make something happen that's not supposed to be able to happen. And in a way, what literature does is it, it helps us exercise that way of thinking. What if all these, in other words, using that those, those two words, what if, and so it forces us off the path that we're used to occupying. It also helps us realize other ways of, of seeing what is right before our eyes, as well as imagining possible futures. My name is Jacob A. Preisler, a student of comparative literature and cultural studies at the University of Minnesota and the University of Edinburgh. With the creative process, I collaborate on interviews discussing literature, the arts, and society. As we further centered our focus on David's newest book, Speaking Out of Place, I wanted to discuss how we as individuals can utilize his advice in our contemporary setting. His words press for an accountability to reclaim one's political voice from those who misrepresent them. Speaking against burgeoning fascism, destructive neoliberal policies, and their damaging effects on our society and environment. Politics have largely been dictated by those authorized to speak, of which speaking out of place encourages its readers to transcend, thereby crafting a space of their own 
in which the unheard voices authorize themselves to address the shortcomings of society. But in the progressively interconnected world of social media, I wonder what complications arise from a multitude of intentions in a space of immense influence. I can't help but think, do all protests align with speaking out of place? it's almost maybe not fashionable to speak about the arts as though they have a spiritual dimension because we might not be you know religious and observing but one thing is i reflect upon environmentalists or activists there can be particularly environmentalists there is a spiritual dimension in that or a moral dimension about what our responsibility is to the next generation and then i think about artists there is something spiritual, even if you think about where ideas or creativity comes from, or the striving to, to create something. To me, it has to come from something, if not akin, something akin to spirituality. No, I, I completely agree. A lot of the way I've come to understand environmental justice is really colored by indigenous pre-colonial. I mean, you know, David Graeber's book about the, it, it's such a beautiful book that really shows us that at a certain point in Western history, we made a certain turn that necessitated unlearning all sorts of things that we had we had come to understand. And I think, again, it has to do with our acquiescence to easy labels, because spirituality now we consider it as Eastern to begin with, old, kind of wacky, you know, not, not really real. And that wasn't always the case. Spirituality was at the core of things. It was a way of imagining relationships with others and, and obligations to others. We talked about human rights. There's also the, in Latin America, the human declaration of human and responsibilities. In that document, the two are, are seen as being completely fused together. You know, your right to do things is predicated on your recognition that you're part of something bigger than yourself. And that's the kind of spirituality that extends to the planet. When we have, like at Stanford, these, I think, very good initiatives for sustainability, I think it's, it's certainly time for this, but indigenous peoples had sustainability built into their very belief system. In fact, and I'm placing language upon it that is a little bit anachronistic, but it's totally rational that you don't want to deplete a resource that's feeding you, which is the basis of capitalism, which is to, which is to extract without with only a mind for profit rather than a replenishment of the resources. Yeah, there's a beautiful uh, natural wisdom to that. And I feel yeah. like what you said, we unlearned a lot of things that we now realize, well, we shouldn't have thrown that out. And it seems to be part of this kind of wrapped up with colonialism too, because as a civilizing force, well, we have to find the difference between us and mm -hmm. say, oh, mm -hmm. those are backwards ways. And this is what we'll, we'll bring. And it's that notion of progress. Especially these days, and I know we're, um, I'm talking from, you know, the, the space of the university and, and gets back to something that you said before about one generation's obligations to the following. My heart goes out to students today because they're faced with all the things we've talked about, pandemic, climate crisis, etc., a broken political system, a very alienated set of social and political behaviors, and a horrible economy. School in general is supposed to be a place for exploration. The material demands that they see quite rightly all channel them toward expediency and employability. To their shame, schools have often gone along with this because they want to have their own institutions, budgets replenished, et cetera, endowments filled. 
And so there's this real uh, degradation of the educational process and now reinforces this idea of sort of almost industrialization of, of the intellect. Yeah, I mean, so many, and I know you know so many, you know, really talented um, artists and academics and activists, and so many I've discovered through conversations didn't know what they were, what they studied had nothing to do with what they ended up doing, but somehow enriched it. Mm-hmm. And and you, there, you had this evolution that you're always interested in comparative literature, but always these other things, and they enriched each other in conversation mm-hmm. um, with one another. So I'm wondering, as you reflect on some of those important teachers or activists, people across the arts, what were some traits that they shared or what lessons did they share with you? The person who I studied under, even though I didn't go to Harvard, I went to Berkeley, but he was one of the primary figures in classical Chinese poetry, Stephen Owen, who was first at Yale and then at Harvard. And again, it shows the the spiritual aspect of of literary study. I approached him because I, I admired his work so much. And this was the year I was going to spend in Kyoto studying classical Chinese and classical Japanese. And this was also his year sabbatical. It shows how perhaps reckless I can be. I, I asked, I know it, it's your sabbatical, Steve. And so if you can't do it, that's fine. But I would love it if you would agree to be on my dissertation committee. And he he agreed. And sabbaticals are almost a religious <laughs> ritual in academia because it's the only time you have to just think and write. He liked what I was trying to do. And so I remember, and this is way before the internet, being in Kyoto, waiting for the mails delivered by a single post officer on a motorcycle when you live up into the hills. So I'm waiting for the sound of the motorcycle to come and deliver this, you know, hopefully a package from Steve, you know, in response to a document I sent him. And Steve is an inveterate pipe smoker. He's always smoking this big pipe and carrying this big briefcase. And when I opened up the manila envelope, this huge blossom of, of tobacco smoke filled the air in Kyoto. And this was a real communion. And one thing that he taught me along with patience and everything else was, I wrote him one time, I said, okay, I finally, and this is after I finished the PhD and I was a professor. I wrote him a note saying, okay, I get this poem. It took me this long for my life to catch up to, to when I understood it. And Steve wrote back and he said, you know, classical poetry to me is an awful lot like the blues. It, it takes life experience to really begin to understand what this might mean. And in a way, when I teach Kotsia's disgrace, I say the same thing to undergraduates. Until you're older, you can't understand what the anxieties all around this issue, which is both political, sexual, every other moral, ethical, these things strike you as just being bizarre, but when you're older, they're bizarre, but in a different way. So that's one thing that I learned. Other teachers have been more small insights that all became synth- synthesized in my life. So taking little bits and pieces of things. And again, it gets back to an earlier discussion. So much is about listening. You know, we're just not used to listening we want to make sure our presence is felt. So we're talking and we're tweeting and we're posting, but listening to things that don't seem to speak from a voice that should be paid attention to. Again, that's part of the book too. Yeah. 
So much of finding your voice is listening. And it's it goes back to what you're talking about music or blues or whatever. There's a there's a rhythm to it. And, and writing mm-hmm. is definitely, you know, uh, akin to music. You know, it's interesting because you said about time, you know, book coming at a time, or maybe you only being able to meet that book and fully understand it at a time. And there are books that speak to us when we're young. And when we visit them later, we're a different person. It's the river that you can't step in twice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some writers shared with me, I mean, it goes both ways. The things I wrote when I was 20, and I I can't do that again. But now I have this, these other layers, and, and now is the time for those books. It's very interesting. The intellect and the heart grows apart. And I think mm-hmm. maybe at another age, it takes a lifetime to bring them back together. Or a set of experiences. And one thing I, I did, I don't do it these days, but I used to teach what's called here in the States, continuing education. In other words, it's for adults who have long since graduated from college. I was so impressed by people who would literally drive two hours up the coast to take a class. They were retired and they got into investment banking or real estate or whatever, engineering. And they come back and they say, the classes they most remember are humanities classes. Small classes where people were talking about things in life that they wanted to come back to. And so when people say, oh, there's the crisis in the humanities, I say, well, only if you look at it from a an institutional point of view, like majors and enrollments. But if you think about, I think especially today, people are are tapping back into this. And in my climate change course, I teach this, I'm sure you know the book, uh, Chernobyl Prayer by Leksevich. And there's that one moment where she's interviewing all these survivors of Chernobyl disaster. And one person says, it was at that moment that we all became philosophers. You know, the world historical event, a catastrophic one, had made everybody think, well, what is life? And it was only with that interruption of that devastating event that they, they felt compelled to be philosophers. And I think that we can think of sort of many catastrophes or challenges in our lives that we should philosophize about. Seems like we're now facing this other philosophical existential question of our you know our very existence i i wonder that's interesting as a example of perhaps the future of journalism it's something that we consider Mm. now as we speak about media and the gosh in the last decade or the last two decades it's a different beast entirely from what you know i knew uh growing up so as you consider what the future of journalism is, you know, in public journalism, mm. what are your thoughts on it? And how can we also protect the journalistic, the integrity of journalism? When I was a sophomore in college, that was what I wanted to be. I was going to major in journalism. And I took a journalism course from a journalist. And at the last day of class, he invited so many of his colleagues from the newsroom to talk to us. And we said, if we wanted to have your lives, what should we major in? Thinking, of course, they're going to say journalism. And they all said the same thing. They said, major in anything except journalism, because you have to know something about the world. You can learn to write like a journalist anytime. That was back in the old days. These days, journalism is totally in peril. There's no no fact-checking. It's all opinion, basically masquerading as journalism. So it becomes the voices with the most clickbaity types of articles. And real journalists, and thank goodness for the Nobel Prize that went to imperiled journalists last year. They are the ones who are really endangered because they're speaking the truth. They're risking their lives to find out actual facts, not just opinions. 
So I think it's a very dangerous time for journalists. It always has been, but especially under fascistic regimes, they're unbearable because they want they want the truth. They want their their energy is behind finding it. And even if if certain forces don't want them to find that particular thing, they don't want that mentality. The big newspapers, I mean, Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. New York Times is, you know, is not perfect, but there are people still trying to do good work. It's just that they are fighting so many battles that they didn't have to fight before. Can't imagine what it is just to to have your voice is imperils your life. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, you know, I guess as you, as you look to the future and these various systems that we could change, if one had some particular areas, a few areas that we could try to accomplish. I mean, I don't know what your wish list is. It's the book, essentially, because it's, it's especially in the United States today, when we see the very notion of democracy imperiled, I mean, seriously imperiled. I can't say that electoral politics are not worth engaging in. They certainly are. But as I've told others asking the same question, electoral politics can only buy us time. It's important to have that time. But what we do with that time is critical. And with that time, we should try to, again, find our capacity and exercise our capacity to speak out and to form new ways of thinking about policy and living together. Because the old systems are depleted. They're really, there's no rectifying it. There's no scaling it back nearly to the degree it's necessary. And it sounds like an impossible task, but I don't see much other promise other than I suppose a kind of wholesale reevaluation of our relationship to politics and to each other. Yes, it's really needed. And we we look for it in our own ways. I think that maybe Mm -hmm. podcasting is some way where you can reach a lot of people. It's always heartening to hear from people from around the world, too, that you wouldn't expect would uh, things would resonate with. And so I think, you know, in closing, you've given us your reflections on the future and the kind of world we should you know, believing that for the next generation, but what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? For young people, I think you should, first of all, understand that you are trying to or have normal lives based on things your parents and your grandparents modeled before you, but you're faced with a set of historical circumstances that are unprecedented. So the first thing I would say to you is to be kind to yourselves. Be patient with yourselves. Don't think of the arts and literature as indulgences. Think of them as sources of solace, wisdom, and inspiration. And also be kind to each other because others are coextensive with you. And with that, I think you will have the capacity or more of a capacity to have the best life you possibly can. That is what we all hope for. And that's no small achievement because it ripples out and it increases the happiness and the well-being of others. So thank you, David Palumbalu, for your invaluable contribution and all you do to help us examine democracy, the public space and the arts and what it is to live a meaningful life, including our responsibility to the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society so we can create a better tomorrow. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for helping make the world a better place for future generations and adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you. 
One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer of this podcast was Jacob A. Preisler. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Brous. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.